Book Four, Chapter Three, Part One of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book Four What Life Is. Chapter Three Towards Hotel Life. Part One. One. Sophia wore list slippers in the morning. It was a habit which she had formed in the Rue Lord Byron, by accident rather than with an intention to utilize list slippers for the effective supervision of servants. These list slippers were the immediate cause of important happenings in St. Luke's Square. Sophia had been with Constance one calendar month. It was, of course, astonishing how quickly the time had passed, and she had become familiar with the house. Restraint had gradually ceased to mark the relations of the sisters. Constance, in particular, hid nothing from Sophia, who was made aware of the minor and major defects of Amy and all the other creakings of the household machine. Meals were eaten off the ordinary tablecloths, and on the days for turning out the parlour, Constance assumed, with a little laugh, that Sophia would excuse Amy's apron, which she had not had time to change. In brief, Sophia was no longer a stranger, and nobody felt bound to pretend that things were not exactly what they were. In spite of the foulness and the provinciality of Bursley, Sophia enjoyed the intimacy with Constance. As for Constance, she was enchanted. The inflections of their voices, when they were talking to each other very privately, were often tender, and these sudden surprising tendernesses secretly thrilled both of them. On the fourth Sunday morning, Sophia put on her dressing-gown and those list slippers very early, and paid a visit to Constance's bedroom. She was somewhat concerned about Constance, and her concern was pleasurable to her. She made the most of it. Amy, with her lifelong carelessness about doors, had criminally failed to latch the street-door of the parlour on the previous morning, and Constance had only perceived the omission by the phenomenon of frigidity in her legs at breakfast. She always sat with her back to the door, in her mother's fluted rocking-chair, and Sophia on the spot, but not in the chair, occupied by John Baines in the forties, and in the seventies, and later, by Samuel Povey. Constance had been alarmed by that frigidity. "'I shall have a return of my sciatica!' she had exclaimed and Sophia was startled by the apprehension in her tone. Before evening the sciatica had indeed revisited Constance's sciatic nerve, and Sophia, for the first time, gained an idea of what a pulsating sciatica can do in the way of torturing its victim. Constance, in addition to the sciatica, had caught a sneezing cold, and the act of sneezing caused her the most acute pain. Sophia had soon stopped the sneezing, Constance was got to bed. Sophia wished to summon the doctor, but Constance assured her the doctor would have nothing new to advise. Constance suffered angelically. The weak and exquisite sweetness of her smile, as she lay in bed under the stress of twinging pain amid hot water-bottles, was amazing to Sophia. It made her think upon the reserves of Constance's character, and upon the variety of the manifestations of the Bane's blood. So, on the Sunday morning, she had arisen early, just after Amy. She discovered Constance to be a little better, as regards the neuralgia, but exhausted by the torments of a sleepless night. Sophia, 
though she had herself not slept well, felt somehow conscience-stricken for having slept at all. "'You poor dear,' she murmured, brimming with sympathy. "'I shall make you some tea at once myself.' "'Oh, Amy will do it,' said Constance. Sophia repeated with a resolute intonation, "'I shall make it myself.' And after being satisfied that there was no instant need for a renewal of hot-water bottles, she went downstairs in those list slippers. As she was descending the dark kitchen steps, she heard Amy's voice in pettish exclamation, "'Oh, get out, you!' followed by a yelp from Fossette. She had a swift movement of anger, which she controlled. The relations between her and Fossette were not marked by transports, and her rule over dogs in general was severe. Even when alone she very seldom kissed the animal passionately, according to the general habit of people owning dogs, but she loved Fossette and, moreover, her love for Fossette had been lately sharpened by the ridicule which Bursley had showered upon that strange beast. Happily for Sophia's amour propre, there was no means of getting Fossette shaved in Bursley, and thus Fossette was daily growing less comic to the Bursley eye. Sophia could therefore, without loss of dignity, yield to the force of circumstances what she would not have yielded to popular opinion. She guessed that Amy had no liking for the dog, but the accent which Amy had put upon the you seemed to indicate that Amy was making distinctions between Fossette and Spot, and this disturbed Sophia much more than Fossette's yelp. Sophia coughed and entered the kitchen. Spot was lapping his morning milk out of a saucer, while Fossette stood wistfully, an amorphous mass of thick hair under the table. "'Good morning, Amy,' said Sophia, with dreadful politeness. "'Good morning, mum,' said Amy, glumly. Amy knew that Sophia had heard that yelp, and Sophia knew that she knew. The pretence of politeness was horrible. Both the women felt as though the kitchen was sanded with gunpowder, and there were lighted matches about. Sophia had a very proper grievance against Amy on account of the open door of the previous day. Sophia thought that, after such a sin, the least Amy could do was to show contrition and amiability, and an anxiety to please, which things Amy had not shown. Amy had a grievance against Sophia, because Sophia had recently thrust upon her a fresh method of cooking green vegetables. Amy was a strong opponent of new or foreign methods. Sophia was not aware of this grievance, for Amy had hidden it under her customary cringing politeness to Sophia. They surveyed each other like opposing armies. "'What a pity you have no gas-stove here!' "'I want to make some tea at once for Mrs. Povey,' said Sophia, inspecting the just-born fire. "'Gas-stove, ma'am,' said Amy, hostilely. It was Sophia's list slippers which had finally decided Amy to drop the mask of deference. She made no effort to aid Sophia. She gave no indication of where the various necessaries for tea were to be found. Sophia got the kettle and washed it out. Sophia got the smallest teapot— and as the tea-leaves had been left in it, she washed out the teapot also, with exaggerated noise and meticulousness. Sophia got the sugar and the other trifles, and Sophia blew up the fire with the bellows, and Amy did nothing in particular except encourage Spot to drink. "'Is that all the milk you gave to Fossette?' Sophia demanded coldly when it had come to Fossette's turn. She was waiting for the water to boil. The saucer for the bigger dog— who would have made two of Spot, was not half full. 
"'It's all there is to spare, Mum,' Amy rasped. Sophia made no reply. Soon afterwards she departed with the tea successfully made. If Amy had not been a mature woman of over forty, she would have snorted as Sophia went away. But Amy was scarcely the ordinary silly girl. Save for a certain primness as she offered the tray to her sister, Sophia's demeanour gave no sign whatever that the Amazon in her was aroused. Constance's eager trembling pleasure in the tea touched her deeply, and she was exceedingly thankful that Constance had her, Sophia, as a sucker in times of distress. A few minutes later, Constance, having first asked Sophia what time it was by the watch in the watch-case on the chest of drawers, the Swiss clock had long since ceased to work, pulled the red tassel of the bell-cord over her head. A bell tinkled far away in the kitchen. "'Anything I can do?' Sophia inquired. "'Oh, no, thanks.' said Constance. I only wanted my letters if the postman has come. He ought to have been here long ago. Sophia had learnt during her stay that Sunday morning was the morning on which Constance expected a letter from Cyril. It was a definite arrangement between mother and son that Cyril should write on Saturdays, and Constance on Sundays. Sophia knew that Constance set store by this letter, becoming more and more preoccupied about Cyril as the end of the week approached. Since Sophia's arrival, Cyril's letter had not failed to come, but once it had been naught save a scribbled line or two, and Sophia gathered that it was never a certainty, and that Constance was accustomed, though not reconciled, to disappointments. Sophia had been allowed to read the letters. They left a faint impression on her mind that her favourite was perhaps somewhat negligent in his relations with his mother. There was no reply to the bell. Constance rang again without effect. With a brusque movement, Sophia left the bedroom by way of Cyril's room. "'Amy!' she called over the banisters. "'Do you not hear your mistress's bell?' "'I'm coming as quick as I can, ma'am.' The voice was still very glum. Sophia murmured something inarticulate, staying till assured that Amy really was coming, and then she passed back into Cyril's bedroom. She waited there, hesitant, not exactly on the watch, not exactly unwilling to assist at an interview between Amy and Amy's mistress. Indeed, she could not have surely analysed her motive for remaining in Cyril's bedroom, with the door ajar between that room and Constance's. Amy reluctantly mounted the stairs, and went into her mistress's bedroom with her chin in the air. She thought that Sophia had gone up to the second story, where she belonged— she stood in silence by the bed, showing no sympathy with Constance, no curiosity as to the indisposition. She objected to Constance's attack of sciatica as being a too permanent reproof of her carelessness as to doors. Constance also waited, for the fraction of a second, as if expectant. "'Well, Amy,' she said at length, in her voice, weakened by fatigue and pain, "'the letters?' "'There ain't no letters.' said Amy, grimly. "'You might have known if there had been any. I should have brought them up. Postman went past twenty minutes agone. I'm always being interrupted, and it isn't as if I hadn't got enough to do. Now—' She turned to leave, and was pulling the door open. "'Amy!' said a voice sharply. It was Sophia's. The servant jumped, and in spite of herself obeyed the implicit, imperious command to stop. "'You will please not speak to your mistress in that tone, at any rate while I'm here,' 
said Sophia, icily. "'You know she is ill and weak. You ought to be ashamed of yourself.' "'I never,' Amy began. "'I don't want to argue,' Sophia said angrily. "'Please leave the room.' Amy obeyed. She was cowed, in addition to being staggered. To the persons involved in it, this episode was intensely dramatic. Sophia had surmised that Constance permitted liberties of speech to Amy. She even guessed that Amy sometimes took licence to be rude, but that the relations between them were such as to allow the bullying of Constance by an Amy downright insolent. This had shocked and wounded Sophia, who suddenly had a vision of Constance as the victim of a reign of terror. "'If the creature will do this while I'm here,' said Sophia to herself, "'what does she do when they are alone together in the house?' "'Well!' she exclaimed. "'I never heard of such goings-on. "'And you let her talk to you in that style? "'My dear Constance!' Constance was sitting up in bed, the small tea-tray on her knees. Her eyes were moist. The tears had filled them when she knew that there was no letter. Ordinarily, the failure of Cyril's letter would not have made her cry, but weakness had impaired her self-control. And the tears, having once got into her eyes, she could not dismiss them. There they were. "'She's been with me such a long time,' Constance murmured. "'She takes liberties. I've corrected her once or twice.' "'Liberties!' Sophia repeated the word. "'Liberties! Of course, I really ought not to allow it,' said Constance. "'I ought to have put a stop to it long since.' "'Well!' said Sophia, rather relieved by this symptom of Constance's secret mind. "'I do hope you won't think I'm meddlesome, but truly it was too much for me. The words were out of my mouth before I—' She stopped. "'You were quite right, quite right,' said Constance, seeing before her in the woman of fifty the passionate girl of fifteen. "'I've had a good deal of experience of servants,' said Sophia. "'I know you have.' "'Constance put in, and I'm convinced that it never pays to stand any sauce. "'Servants don't understand kindness and forbearance, "'and this sort of thing grows and grows till you can't call your soul your own.' "'You're quite right,' Constance said again, with even more positiveness. "'Not merely the conviction that Sophia was quite right, "'but the desire to assure Sophia that Sophia was not meddlesome "'gave force to her utterance.' Amy's allusion to extra work shamed Amy's mistress as a hostess, and she was bound to make amends. "'Now, as to that woman,' said Sophia in a lower voice, as she sat down confidentially on the edge of the bed. And she told Constance about Amy and the dogs, and about Amy's rudeness in the kitchen. "'I should never have dreamt of mentioning such things,' she finished, "'but under the circumstances I feel it right that you should know. I feel you ought to know.' and Constance nodded her head in thorough agreement. She did not trouble to go into articulate apologies to her guest for the actual misdeeds of her servant. The sisters were now on a plane of intimacy where such apologies would have been supererogatory. Their voices fell lower and lower, and the case of Amy was laid bare and discussed to the minutest detail. Gradually they realised that what had occurred was a crisis— they were both very excited, apprehensive, and rather too consciously defiant. At the same time, they were drawn very close to each other, by Sophia's generous indignation, and by Constance's absolute loyalty. 
A long time passed before Constance said, thinking about something else, "'I expect it's been delayed in the post.' "'Cyril's letter? Oh, no doubt. If you knew the posts in France, my word!' Then they determined, with little sighs, to face the crisis cheerfully. In truth it was a crisis, and a great one. The sensation of the crisis affected the atmosphere of the entire house. Constance got up for tea, and managed to walk to the drawing-room. And when Sophia, after an absence in her own room, came down to tea, and found the tea all served, Constance whispered, "'She's given notice! And Sunday, too!' "'What did she say?' "'She didn't say much,' Constance replied vaguely, hiding from Sophia that Amy had harped on the too great profusion of mistresses in that house. "'After all, it's just as well. She'll be all right. She's saved a good bit of money, and she has friends.' "'But how foolish of her to give up such a good place!' "'She simply doesn't care,' said Constance, who was a little hurt by Amy's defection. "'When she takes her thing into her head, she simply doesn't care. She's got no common sense. I've always known that.' "'So you're going to leave Amy?' said Sophia that evening, as Amy was passing through the parlour on her way to bed. Constance was already arranged for the night. "'I am, ma'am.' answered Amy, precisely. Her tone was not rude, but it was firm. She had apparently reconnoitred her position in calmness. "'I am sorry I was obliged to correct you this morning,' said Sophia, with cheerful amicableness, pleased in spite of herself with the woman's tone, "'but I think you will see that I had reason to.' "'I've been thinking it over, mum,' said Amy, with dignity, "'and I see as I must leave.' There was a pause. "'Well, you know best. Good-night, Amy.' "'Good-night, ma'am.' "'She's a decent woman,' thought Sophia, "'but hopeless for this place now.' The sisters were fronted with the fact that Constance had a month in which to find a new servant, and that a new servant would have to be trained in well-doing, and might easily prove disastrous. Both Constance and Amy were profoundly disturbed by the prospective dissolution of a bond which dated from the seventies, and both were decided that there was no alternative to the dissolution. Outsiders knew merely that Mrs. Povey's old servant was leaving. Outsiders merely saw Mrs. Povey's advertisement in the signal for a new servant. They could not read hearts. Some of the younger generation even said superiorly that old-fashioned women like Mrs. Povey seemed to have servants on the brain, etc., etc. 2. "'Well, have you got your letter?' Sophia demanded cheerfully of Constance when she entered the bedroom the next morning. Constance merely shook her head. She was very depressed. Sophia's cheerfulness died out. As she hated to be insincerely optimistic, she said nothing. Otherwise, she might have remarked, "'Perhaps the afternoon post will bring it.' Gloom reigned, to Constance particularly. As Amy had given notice, and as Cyril was remiss, it seemed really that the time was out of joint, and life unworth living. Even the presence of Sophia did not bring her much comfort. Immediately Sophia left the room, Constance's sciatica began to return— and in a severe form. She had regretted this, less for the pain than because she had just assured Sophia, quite honestly, that she was not suffering. Sophia had been sceptical. After that it was, of course, imperative that Constance should get up as usual. 
She had said that she would get up as usual. Besides, there was the immense enterprise of obtaining a new servant. Worries loomed mountainous. Suppose Cyril were dangerously ill and unable to write. Suppose something had happened to him. Supposing she never did obtain a new servant. Sophia, up in her room, was endeavouring to be philosophical, and to see the world brightly. She was saying to herself that she must take Constance in hand, that what Constance lacked was energy, that Constance must be stirred out of her groove. And in the cavernous kitchen, Amy, preparing the nine o'clock breakfast, was meditating upon the ingratitude of employers, and wondering what the future held for her. She had a widowed mother in the very picturesque village of Snaid, where the mortal and immortal welfare of every inhabitant was watched over by God's vice-regent, the busy Countess of Chell. She possessed about two hundred pounds of her own. Her mother for years had been begging Amy to share her home free of expense. But nevertheless Amy's mind was black with foreboding and vague dejection. The house was a house of sorrow, and these three women— each solitary, the devotees of sorrow. And the two dogs wandered disconsolate up and down, aware of the necessity for circumspection, never guessing that the highly peculiar state of the atmosphere had been brought about by nothing but a half-shut door and an incorrect tone. As Sophia, fully dressed this time, was descending to breakfast, she heard Constance's voice, feebly calling her, and found the convalescent still in bed. The truth could not be concealed. Constance was once more in great pain, and her moral condition was not favourable to fortitude. "'I wish you had told me to begin with,' Sophia could not help saying. "'Then I should have known what to do.' Constance did not defend herself by saying that the pain had only recurred since their first interview that morning. She just wept. "'I'm very low,' she blubbered. Sophia was surprised. She felt that this was not being a Baines. During the progress of that interminable April morning, her acquaintance with the possibilities of sciatica as an agent destructive of moral fibre was further increased. Constance had no force at all to resist its activity. The sweetness of her resignation seemed to melt into nullity. She held to it that the doctor could do nothing for her. About noon, when Sophia was moving anxiously around her, she suddenly screamed. "'I feel as if my leg was going to burst!' she cried. That decided Sophia. As soon as Constance was a little easier, she went downstairs to Amy. "'Amy,' she said, "'it is a Dr. Stirling that your mistress has when she's ill, isn't it?' "'Yes, ma'am.' "'Where is his surgery?' "'Well, Mum, he did live just opposite with Dr. Harrop, but latterly he's gone to live at Blakeridge.' "'I wish you would put your things on and run up there and ask him to call as soon as he can.' "'I will, Mum,' says Amy, with the greatest willingness. "'I thought I heard Mrs. cry out.' She was not effusive. She was better than effusive, kindly and helpful, with a certain reserve. "'There's something about that woman I like.' said Sophia to herself. For a proved fool, Amy was indeed holding her own rather well. Dr. Stirling drove down about two o'clock. He had now been established in the five towns for more than a decade, and the stamp of success was on his brow, and on the proud forehead of his trotting horse. He had, in the phrase of the signal, identified himself with the local life of the district. He was liked, 
being a man of broad sympathies. In his rich Scotch accent he could discuss with equal ability the flavour of whisky or of a sermon, and he had more than sufficient tact never to discuss either whiskies or sermons in the wrong place. He had made a speech, responding to the learned professions, at the annual dinner of the Society for the Prosecution of Felons, and this speech, in which praise of red wine was rendered innocuous by praise of books, his fine library was notorious, had classed him as a wit with the American consul, whose postprandial manner was modelled on Mark Twain's. He was thirty-five years of age, tall and stoutish, with a chubby, boyish face that the razor left chiefly blue every morning. The immediate effect of his arrival on Constance was miraculous. His presence almost cured her for a moment, just as though her malady had been toothache and he a dentist. Then, when he had finished his examination, the pain resumed its sway over her. In talking to her and to Sophia, he listened very seriously to all that they said. He seemed to regard the case as the one case that had ever aroused his genuine professional interest. But as it unfolded itself, in all its difficulty and urgency, so he seemed, in his mind, to be discovering wondrous ways of dealing with it. These mysterious discoveries seemed to give him confidence, and his confidence was communicated to the patient by means of faint sallies of humour. He was a highly skilled doctor. This fact, however, had no share in his popularity, which was due solely to his rare gift of taking a case very seriously, while remaining cheerful. He said he would return in a quarter of an hour, and he returned in thirteen minutes, with a hypodermic syringe, with which he attacked the pain in its central strongholds. "'What is it?' asked Constance, breathing gratitude for the relief. He paused, looking at her roguishly from under lowered eyelids. "'I'd better not tell ye,' he said. "'It might lead ye into mischief.' "'Oh, but you must tell me, doctor.' Constance insisted, anxious that he should live up to his reputation for Sophia's benefit. "'It's hydrochloride of cocaine,' he said, and lifted a finger. "'Beware of the cocaine habit. It's ruined many a respectable family. But if I hadn't a certain amount of confidence in your strength of character, Mrs. Poovey, I wouldn't have risked it.' "'He will have his joke, will the doctor?' Constance smiled, in a brighter world. He said that he should come again about half-past five, and he arrived about half-past six, and injected more cocaine. The special importance of the case was thereby established. On this second visit, he and Sophia soon grew rather friendly. When she conducted him downstairs again, he stopped chatting with her in the parlour for a long time, as though he had nothing else on earth to do, while his coachman walked the horse to and fro in front of the door. His attitude to her flattered Sophia, for it showed that he took her for no ordinary woman. It implied a continual assumption that she must be a mine of interest for anyone who was privileged to delve into her memory. So far among Constance's acquaintance, Sophia had met no one who showed more than a perfunctory curiosity as to her life. Her return was accepted with indifference. Her escapade of thirty years ago had entirely lost its dramatic quality. Many people, indeed, had never heard that she had run away from home to marry a commercial traveller, and to those who remembered, or had been told, it seemed a sufficiently banal exploit, after thirty years. Her fear, and Constance's, that the town would be murmurous with gossip, was ludicrously unfounded. 
The effect of time was such that even Mr. Critchlow appeared to have forgotten, even that she had been indirectly responsible for her father's death. She had nearly forgotten it herself. When she happened to think of it, she felt no shame, no remorse, seeing the death as purely accidental, and not altogether unfortunate. On two points only was the town inquisitive, as to her husband, and as to the precise figure at which she had sold the pension. The town knew that she was probably not a widow, for she had been obliged to tell Mr. Critchlow, and Mr. Critchlow, in some hour of tenderness, had told Maria. But nobody had dared to mention the name of Gerald Scales to her. With her fashionable clothes, her striking mien of command, and the legend of her wealth, she inspired respect, if not awe, in the townsfolk. In the doctor's attitude there was something of amaze. She felt it though the dull apathy of the people she had hitherto met was assuredly not without its advantageous side for her tranquillity of mind. It had touched her vanity, and the gaze of the doctor soothed the smart. He had so obviously divined her interestingness. He so obviously wanted to enjoy it. "'I've just been reading Zola's downfall,' he said. Her mind searched backwards and recalled a poster— "'Oh!' she replied. "'La débâcle!' "'Yes. What do you think of it?' His eyes lighted at the prospect of talk. He was even pleased to hear her give him the title in French. "'I haven't read it,' she said, and she was momentarily sorry that she had not read it, for she could see that he was dashed. The doctor had supposed that residence in a foreign country involved a knowledge of the literature of that country. Yet he had never supposed that residence in England involved a knowledge of English literature. Sophia had read practically nothing since 1870. For her the latest author was Chaboulier. Moreover, her impression of Zola was that he was not at all nice, and that he was the enemy of his race, though at that date the world had scarcely heard of Dreyfus. Dr. Stirling had too hastily assumed that the opinions of the bourgeois upon art differ in different countries. "'And you were actually at the siege of Paris?' he questioned, trying again. "'Yes. And the Commune?' "'Yes, the Commune, too.' "'Well,' he exclaimed, "'it's incredible. When I was reading the downfall the night before last, I said to myself that you must have been through a lot of all that. I didn't know I was going to have the pleasure of a chat with you so soon.' She smiled. "'But how did you know I was in the siege of Paris?' she asked, curious. "'How do I know? <laughs> I know because I've seen that birthday card you sent to Mrs. Povey in 1871, after it was over. It's one of her possessions, that card is. She showed it me one day when she told me ye were coming.' Sophia started. She had quite forgotten that card. It had not occurred to her that Constance would have treasured all those cards that she had dispatched during the early years of her exile. She responded as well as she could to his eagerness for personal details concerning the siege and the commune. He might have been disappointed at the prose of her answers, had he not been determined not to be disappointed. "'You seem to have taken it all very quietly,' he observed. "'Oh, yes,' she agreed, not without pride. "'But it's a long time since.' Those events, as they existed in her memory, scarcely warranted the tremendous fuss subsequently made about them. What were they, after all? Such was her secret thought. Chirac himself was now nothing but a faint shadow. Still, 
Were the estimate of those events true or false, she was a woman who had been through them, and Dr. Stirling's high appreciation of that fact was very pleasant to her. Their friendliness approached intimacy. Night had fallen. Outside could be heard the champing of a bit. "'I must be getting on,' he said at last, but he did not move. "'Then there is nothing else I am to do for my sister?' Sophia inquired. "'I don't think so.' said he. It isn't a question of medicine. Then what is it a question of? Sophia demanded bluntly. Nerves, he said. It's nearly all nerves. I know something about Mrs. Povey's constitution now, and I was hoping that your visit would do her good. She's been quite well, I mean, what you might call quite well, until the day before yesterday, when she sat in that draught. She was better last night, and then this morning I find her ever so much worse. No worries. The doctor looked at her, confidentially. What can she have in the way of worries? exclaimed Sophia. That's to say, real worries. Exactly, the doctor agreed. I tell her she doesn't know what worry is, said Sophia. So do I, said the doctor, his eyes twinkling. She was a little upset because she didn't receive her usual Sunday letter from Cyril yesterday, but then she was weak and low. "'Clever youth, Cyril,' mused the doctor. "'I think he's a particularly nice boy,' said Sophia eagerly. "'So you've seen him?' "'Of course,' said Sophia rather stiffly. "'Did the doctor suppose she did not know her own nephew?' She went back to the subject of her sister. She is also a little bothered, I think, because the servant is going to leave. Oh, so Amy is going to leave, is she? He spoke still lower. Between you and me, it's no bad thing. I'm so glad you think so. In another few years, the servant would have been the mistress here. One can see these things coming on, but it's so difficult to do anything. In fact, she can't do anything. I did something said Sophia sharply. I told the woman straight out that it shouldn't go on while I was in the house. I didn't suspect it at first, but when I found out—I can tell you. She let the doctor imagine what she could tell him. He smiled. No, he said. I can easily understand that she didn't suspect anything at first. When she's well and bright, Mrs. Povey could hold her own, so I'm told. But it was certainly slowly getting worse. Then people talk about it, said Sophia, shocked. As a native of Bursley, Mrs. Scales, said the doctor, he ought to know what people in Bursley do. Sophia put her lips together. The doctor rose, smoothing his waistcoat. What does she bother with servants at all for? he burst out. She's perfectly free. She hasn't got a care in the world, if she only knew it. Why doesn't she go out and about and enjoy herself? She wants stirring up. That's what your sister wants. You're quite right, Sophia burst out in her turn. That's precisely what I say to myself. Precisely. I was thinking it over only this morning. She wants stirring up. She's got into a rut. She needs to be jolly. Why doesn't she go to some seaside place and live in a hotel and enjoy herself? Is there anything to prevent her? nothing whatever. Instead of being dependent on a servant, I believe in enjoying oneself when you've got the money to do it with. 
can ye imagine anybody living in Bursley for pleasure, and especially in St. Luke's Square, right in the thick of it all? Smoke, dirt, no air, no light, no scenery, no amusements. What does she do it for? She's in a rut. Yes, she's in a rut. Sophia repeated her own phrase, which he had copied. My word, said the doctor, wouldn't I clear out and enjoy myself if I could? Your sister's a young woman. Of course she is, Sophia concurred, feeling that she herself was even younger. Of course she is. And except she's nervously organised and has certain predispositions, there's nothing the matter with her. This sciatic, I don't say it would be cured, but it might be by a complete change and throwing off all these ridiculous worries. Not only does she live in the most depressing conditions, but she suffers tortures for it, and there's absolutely no need for her to be here at all. Doctor, said Sophia, solemnly, impressed, you are quite right. I agree with every word you say. Naturally she's attached to the place, he continued glancing round the room. "'I know all about that after living here all her life. But she's got to break herself of the attachment. It's her duty to do so. She ought to show a little energy. I'm deeply attached to my bed in the morning, but I have to leave it.' "'Of course,' said Sophia, in an impatient tone, as though disgusted with every person who could not perceive, or would not subscribe to, these obvious truths that the doctor was uttering. "'Of course!' What she needs is the bustle of life in a good hotel, a good hydro, for instance, among jolly people, parties, games, excursions. She wouldn't be the same woman, you'd see. Wouldn't I do it if I could? Strathpeffer! She'd soon forget her sciatica. I don't know what Mrs. Povey's annual income is, but I expect that if she took it into her head to live in the dearest hotel in England, there would be no reason why she shouldn't. Sophia lifted her head and smiled in calm amusements. "'I expect so,' she said, superiorly. "'A hotel? That's the life. No worries. If you want anything, you ring a bell. If a waiter gives notice, it's someone else who has to worry, not you. But you know all about that, Mrs. Scales.' "'No one better,' murmured Sophia. "'Good evening,' he said abruptly, sticking out his hand. "'I'll be down in the morning.' "'Did you ever mention this to my sister?' Sophia asked him, rising. "'Yes,' said he, "'but it's no use. Oh, yes, I've told her. But she does really think it's quite impossible. She wouldn't even hear of going to live in London with her beloved son. She won't listen.' "'I never thought of that,' said Sophia. "'Good night.' Their hand-grasp was very intimate and mutually comprehending. He was pleased by the quick responsiveness of her temperament, and the masterful vigour which occasionally flashed out in her replies. He noticed the hardly perceptible distortion of her handsome, worn face, and he said to himself, "'She's been through a thing or two, and she'll have to mind her P's and Q's.' Sophia was pleased because he admired her, and because with her he dropped his bedside jocularities, and talked plainly as a sensible man will talk when he meets an uncommonly wise woman, and because he echoed and amplified her own thoughts. She honoured him by standing at the door till he had driven off. For a few moments she mused solitary in the parlour, and then, lowering the gas, she went upstairs to her sister, who lay in the dark. Sophia struck a match. 
"'You've been having quite a long chat with the doctor,' said Constance. "'He's very good company, isn't he? What did he talk about this time?' "'He wanted to know about Paris and so on,' Sophia answered. "'Oh, I believe he's a rare student.' Lying there in the dark, the simple Constance never suspected that these two active and strenuous ones had been arranging her life for her, so that she could be jolly and live for twenty years yet. She did not suspect that she had been tried and found guilty of sinful attachments, and of being in a rut, and of lacking the elements of ordinary sagacity. It had not occurred to her that if she was worried and ill, the reason was to be found in her own blind and stupid obstinacy. She had thought herself a fairly sensible kind of creature. 3. The sisters had an early supper together in Constance's bedroom. Constance was much easier. Having a fancy that a little movement would be beneficial, she had even got up for a few moments and moved about the room. Now she sat ensconced in pillows. A fire burned in the old-fashioned, ineffectual grate. From the sun-vaults opposite came the sound of a phonograph, singing an invitation to God to save its gracious queen. This phonograph was a wonderful novelty, and filled the sun nightly. For a few evenings it had interested the sisters, in spite of themselves, but they had soon sickened of it, and loathed it. Sophia became more and more obsessed by the monstrous absurdity of the simple fact that she and Constance were there, in that dark, inconvenient house, wearied by the gaiety of public houses, blackened by smoke, surrounded by mud, instead of being luxuriously installed in a beautiful climate, amid scenes of beauty and white cleanliness. Secretly she became more and more indignant. Amy entered, bearing a letter in her coarse hand. As Amy unceremoniously handed the letter to Constance, Sophia thought, if she was my servant she would hand letters on a tray. An advertisement had already been sent to the signal. Constance took the letter trembling. "'Here it is at last!' she cried. When she had put on her spectacles and read it, she exclaimed, "'Bless us! Here's news! He's coming down! That's why he didn't write on Saturday, as usual!' She gave the letter to Sophia. It ran, "'Sunday midnight. Dear Mother, just a line to say I'm coming down to Bursley on Wednesday, on business with Peel's. I shall get to Knype at 5.28 and take the loop. I've been very busy, and as I was coming down, I didn't write on Saturday. I hope you didn't worry. Love to yourself and Aunt Sophia. Yours, C. I must send him a line, said Constance excitedly. What, to-night? Yes, Amy can easily catch the last post with it, otherwise he won't know that I've got his letter. She rang the bell. Sophia thought— his coming down is really no excuse for his not writing on Saturday. How could she guess that he was coming down? I shall have to put in a little word to that young man. I wonder Constance is so blind. She's quite satisfied now that his letter has come. On behalf of the elder generation, she rather resented Constance's eagerness to write in answer. But Constance was not so blind. Constance thought exactly as Sophia thought. In her heart she did not at all justify or excuse Cyril. She remembered separately almost every instance of his carelessness in her regard. "'Hope I didn't worry, indeed,' she said to herself, with a faint touch of bitterness, apropos of the phrase in his letter. Nevertheless she insisted on writing at once, and Amy had to bring the writing materials. 
"'Mr. Cyril is coming down on Wednesday,' she said to Amy, with great dignity. Amy's stony calmness was shaken, for Mr. Cyril was a great deal to Amy. Amy wondered how she would be able to look Mr. Cyril in the face when he knew that she had given notice. In the middle of writing on her knee, Constance looked up at Sophia and said, as though defending herself against an accusation, "'I didn't write to him yesterday, you know, or to-day.' "'No,' Sophia murmured assentingly. Constance rang the bell yet again, and Amy was sent out to the post. Soon afterwards the bell was rung for a fourth time, and not answered. "'I suppose she hasn't come back yet, but I thought I heard the door. What a long time she is!' "'What do you want?' Sophia asked. "'I just want to speak to her,' said Constance. When the bell had been rung seven or eight times, Amy at length reappeared, somewhat breathless. "'Amy,' said Constance, "'let me examine those sheets, will you?' "'Yes, ma'am,' said Amy, apparently knowing what sheets, of all the various and multitudinous sheets in that house. "'And the pillowcases,' Constance added, as Amy left the room." So it continued. The next day the fever heightened. Constance was up early, before Sophia, and trotting about the house like a girl. Immediately after breakfast Cyril's bedroom was invested and revolutionised. Not till evening was order restored in that chamber. And on the Wednesday morning it had to be dusted afresh. Sophia watched the preparations and the increasing agitation of Constance's demeanour, with an astonishment which she had real difficulty in concealing. "'Is the woman absolutely mad?' she asked herself. The spectacle was ludicrous, or it seemed so to Sophia, whose career had not embraced much experience of mothers. It was not as if the manifestations of Constance's anxiety were dignified or original or splendid. They were just silly, ordinary fussinesses. They had no sense in them. Sophia was very careful to make no observation— she felt that before she and Constance were very much older she had a very great deal to do, and that a subtle diplomacy and wary tactics would be necessary. Moreover, Constance's angelic temper was slightly affected by the strain of expectation. She had a tendency to rasp. After the high tea was set, she suddenly sprang onto the sofa and lifted down the staggered eve engraving. The dust on the top of the frame incensed her. "'What are you going to do?' Sophia asked, in a final marvel. "'I'm going to change it with that one,' said Constance, pointing to another engraving opposite the fireplace. "'He said the effect would be much better if they were changed, and his lordship is very particular.' Constance did not go to Bursley Station to meet her son. She explained that it upset her to do so, and that also Cyril preferred her not to come. "'Suppose I go to meet him,' said Sophia, at half-past five. The idea had visited her suddenly. She thought, then I could talk to him before anyone else. Oh, do, Constance agreed. Sophia put her things on with remarkable expedition. She arrived at the station a minute before the train came in. Only a few persons emerged from the train, and Cyril was not among them. A porter said that there was not supposed to be any connection between the loop-line trains and the main-line expresses, and that probably the express had missed the loop. She waited thirty-five minutes for the next loop, and Cyril did not emerge from that train either. Constance opened the front door to her, and showed a telegram. "'Sorry, prevented last moment. Writing. Cyril.' 
Sophia had known it. Somehow she had known that it was useless to wait for the second train. Constance was silent and calm. Sophia also. "'What a shame! What a shame!' thumped Sophia's heart. It was the most ordinary episode, but beneath her calm she was furious against her favourite. She hesitated. "'I'm just going out a minute,' she said. "'Where?' asked Constance. "'Hadn't we better have tea? I suppose we must have tea. I shan't be long. I want to buy something.' Sophia went to the post-office, and dispatched a telegram. Then— Partially eased, she returned to the arid and painful desolation of the house. End of Book Four, Chapter Three, Part One.